We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't have, per se, a 4th of July or Independence Day teaching for you. I will just say this much. I was surprised to learn a news article out recently talking about how few Americans know what the 4th of July is even about. Uh, miss the fact that it's not fireworks and barbecues, but it is thanking God for our independence, for our freedom. And freedom is not something generated in the heart of man. Freedom comes from God Himself. It is for freedom that Christ Jesus has set you free. Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to it. You're set free by Jesus. Don't go back into slavery. Now Paul was talking to the Judaizers at that time. Those Jewish Christians, believers in Jesus, who were trying to draw the Gentile believers, as well as other Jewish believers, back into law, back into uh, tyranny, if you will, rather than into the freedom of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I'm so glad in 2,000 years of church history we haven't done that. Yeah, that was sarcasm. (laughs) Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Then why do we do it? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Oh, Father, I have been through these verses many times. But I am shaken, truly, by the seriousness of Paul's words here. Not Paul's words, Father, but the words of your Spirit spoken through him. And these are serious things for us to talk about. While we come together in this joyful place... Free in Christ Jesus. There are some serious realities that sometimes we ignore or overlook or misunderstand. And I would ask this morning, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you would teach us fresh and new. And that you would take this time before us and use it to your benefit, to your will, to your glory. Father, tomorrow people will fire off fireworks 
they will fly what we have often called old glory, the American flag. But there is no glory but that which comes from You. And so, Lord Jesus, we glorify You this morning. Father, we praise Your name. And we humbly ask that You would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk was not only a prophet, he was also a songwriter. And in 1865, a man by the name of George F. Bristow put new music to a song written by the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 20, which reads, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The house was built in silence. One of the remarkable truths about the history of the building of the first temple, Solomon's temple, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, that while it was being built, the house was built of stone prepared at the quarry. And there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. I like that. The stones were prepared in the quarry, but were drawn up and slid into place in absolute silence on the Temple Mount. So that you didn't look up to the Temple Mount, so that the the tabernacle of David, which stood there at the time, wouldn't have to deal with, have to face or handle the tap, 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 chisel, chisel of someone hitting their head on a rock. All the noise of construction wasn't there. I like that. The whole idea of peace in a house under construction. Of silence in a house being built. You might ask, how is that possible? Building a house in peace without saws and hammers and drills? And in the case of the first temple, again, the chiseling, the hammering, the chipping and the smoothing, they all took place down in Solomon's quarry. And when the stones were finished and fitted and prepared, they were drawn up and quietly they were put silently into place. Now, John Corson talks about us being in the quarry today. That our life is spent in the quarry, being prepared. So that one day we would have that peace of the temple. I don't disagree with him. It's a beautiful analogy, but Peter wrote it this way. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, listen, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How do you build a peaceful house? I tell you, get out of the quarry. Why do we think we have to remain in the quarry though we are being sanctified? Peter says we are being built into a spiritual house. Is it possible? Is it even doable to build a house in peace? And I believe there is a way. Now, you Bible students know for all the peace of the building that Solomon's temple would go down in a cacophony of Babylonian war and devastation. It would go up in flames. So too, the second temple, 
sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple, uh, uh, reworked by Herod, but it would go down horribly, noisily, in flames at the hands of Rome in AD 70. And the Bible declares that there will be two more temples, two more that will rise in Jerusalem, one a tribulation temple that will have to deal with the noise and the warfare of Antichrist. But there's a fourth. A fourth temple will be built. And that last one will be built, the Bible tells us, by Messiah. I promise you that temple will be built in peace. And in times of peace. Unlike any the world has ever seen. See, Zechariah chapter 6 verse 13 says, Yes, it is He who will build the temple of the Lord, and He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne. Jesus will build that temple. And so it is absolutely fitting that Jesus lead the construction of this building in peace. You see, I reject the notion that we have to scuffle our way to heaven. I don't buy it. I know it happens. I know there are struggles within the church. But I don't believe it has to be that way. And the key to building in peace is the builder himself, Jesus Christ. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we really have no time to scuffle and chisel and hammer away at each other. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we're looking to Him, all we see is peace. All we hear is the voice of a shepherd leading us to green pastures and beside quiet waters. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, if He is at the center of all that we're doing, if we keep it about Him, I believe we can build in peace. When we slide off and begin to chisel stones, Are those times when we are not listening to Jesus, when we're not looking to Jesus? He's the one who said, Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock, I will build my church. Not Rick's church. Not Wesley's church. Not Luther's church. Not the Pope's church. I will build my church. Yeah, but Rick, it says upon this rock. Exactly. Peter had just declared faith in Jesus Christ. That's the rock. Jesus is the rock. Faith in Jesus is that upon which He will build His church. It's Jesus. And get this, He was the first one to take the Greek word, ekklesia, from the public square and use it for His own people. The ekklesia, prior to Jesus, it just meant a public assembly. Show up at the town square, there's going to be an ecclesia. And everybody understood that that's what it meant. Jesus came along and said, no, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, the assembly of the called. My called assembly, the church. I love the church. Or Rick, I've heard you. I've heard you say negative things about the church. I have. But only because I love the church so much. Rick, I've heard you undermine traditions and and hammer away and chisel it at denominational thinking. I have. And it's only because I so long to see the church built in peace. As opposed to built in pieces. I love the church. And to anyone who says the church, the called assembly, the assembly of the called is unnecessary, I say, hey, talk to Jesus. He's the one who called the assembly. 
He's the one who assembles the called. He's the one who builds His house, and that is what we are. We are His church. I said at the end of of our study on Wednesday night, Sunday morning we're going to talk about how to build a church. And Bill got a twinkle in his eye and said, We just did. And I got a twinkle in my eye and said, No, we didn't. Jesus built His church, and it is not this structure. It's you. And it is me. The assembly of the called, the called assembly. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul finally comes around now to the first disciplinary rebuke of this letter. And there are several. As I keep saying, storm's coming, buckle up. Batten down the hatches. Because Paul is going to go after some serious problems at Corinth. Why? Because he loves the church. Because the church matters. Because the assembly of the called and the called assembly are called to be holy. Different than the world. A unique place where there is peace, where there is love, where yes, there is righteousness and holiness. So Paul gets after it. He's dealing with sectarian division. We hear that word a lot today, sectarian violence. People will say that instead of Islamic terrorism because they're afraid of saying the truth. Sectarian violence, sectarian simply means religious. I wonder, how did that word sectarian get connected to religion? The idea of sectioning out and dividing. And yet that's the meaning of the word. It's religious violence. When someone says sectarian violence, well, at Corinth there was sectarian division. Christian cliques in the church at Corinth. And Paul calls it fleshly. Infantile, I would call it baby fat, milk bottle immaturity. And that's what's going on at Corinth. Go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Remember last week, the pneumaticos, those who are spiritual. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, or another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? Listen, mere men put their trust in mere men. The natural man puts his trust in the natural man. The fleshly man or woman puts their trust in the fleshly man or woman. Don't do it. Don't trust in man. I'm not saying go go around paranoid, untrusting of, of everybody around you. I'm just saying don't put your faith, your hope, your future, your salvation in a church body, in other people, in a pastor, in a leadership Don't do it. Because when we do that, we fear. If the pastor happens to be a pastor that you like. (laughs) People will fear his leaving or something happening to him. That's not putting your faith in Jesus. That's put your faith in the pastor. If the pastor is someone you don't like. (laughs) Then people... They're still putting their faith in the fact that He's the problem. He's the issue. No, our trust, our faith is in Jesus. And when it's in Jesus, we're free. 
as opposed to bound up and worried and constantly concerned. Remember Paul's indictment that we went over last week of the natural man. The natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And using that same word, I remind you what Jude wrote. Listen to it one more time. We looked at this seriously on Wednesday night. Jude 19, these are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly minded or natural. Devoid of the Spirit. Division is symptomatic of a church devoid of the Spirit. Remove the Spirit from the church and you will have divisions. You will have hammering and chipping and noise and tension where the Spirit is not present. Devoid of the Spirit. And I am convinced personally, maybe you've been in a church division situation or you've been hurt in a church situation or you've watched division happen. I am absolutely convinced division can only happen when a people either lack or quench the Spirit of God. Well, we were all very holy when our church divided. I don't think so. I'm not saying that you personally weren't. Or maybe you personally weren't walking in the will of God. But I'll tell you what, people weren't if there was division. Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what the Spirit does. He unifies and He brings peace. Such that the the house can be built in peace. See, this is why Paul implored the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Do you know what your calling is? We are called to Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. Are we living worthy of that calling? Oh, I don't think I'm worthy of anything. Okay, I understand that we come to the Lord humbly. But the point is not to shame people. In Paul saying that, are you living a life worthy of the calling? It's a call to live that way. It's an encouragement to seek to be righteous, to live holy, to constantly come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, what is it that you would have me do? How is it that you would have me live? Help me to have the wisdom and understanding of God. And Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, though that would work. It's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He unifies with peace. And just as Solomon's temple originally was built in peace on the Temple Mount, So Paul now is presenting to us, to the church at Corinth, and us by extension, he is presenting a set of what I would call blissful blueprints. And we start with, number one, the building plan. I'll give you a few things to jot down, you note takers. And the first thing is, the building plan, look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field And he's referring now back to the previous verses where he talked about that he planted and Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. He gives this field analogy, and now he moves to a new analogy, and that is you are God's building. You are God's building. I love the word for building because in the Greek, as in English, it works two ways. The word is oikodome. And you might jot that down, oikodome. 
And it means literally edification. Edification. It also can mean building, as in a building, but it also means building up. It is an edifice, but it is also edifying. The word works both ways, a building, building up, an edifice, edification. And the only way, the only way to properly build up this house, this edifice, is to build it up by way of edification. That's the building plan. And how does that work? Ephesians 4.12 By the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up oikodome of the body of Christ. You are God's building, he says, oikodome. And he talks about now the building up oikodome of the body of Christ. Think about the contrast and how subtly Satan works. We live in a culture and a society in a world that tears down. Even in jest. How often, in poking fun at each other, do we rip each other and tear each other down? And that's tough, because when Joe's around, I just... (laughs) I so love you, and you know that. (laughs) But see, even that, what is it about us and our human tendency to tear down rather than to build up? And I love Joe, and he knows it. You know why Joe's a shepherd among us? There is nobody more welcoming than Joe Phillips. Nobody ready to give a hug faster. I know some of you ducking out of the way, but he's coming after you. (laughs) And it is because he exudes the love of Christ. And see, that's building up. And I wasn't just using that as an example. I really mean it. But we tear down. We have this natural, I think in the natural man, the natural woman, we have the tendency to tear down. Even though we're joking, we're playing around, we still rip each other apart. And Paul says we're to be about the building up. We should perhaps spend more energy and effort to, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another. But instead, oftentimes in the house there are cliques. There are cracks in the wall. There are chips in our foundation. Well, that's because we've got the wrong foundation. Second thing to note this, go to verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. I already laid a foundation, Corinth. You don't have to start with a new one. You don't need new plans and new ideas and new visions and new mission statements and you don't need new purposes. The foundation's already set. It's already here. It's already solid. I laid it for you. And so we go from the building plan now to the architect. Paul says, I'm a wise or like a wise master builder. And the word master builder there is architecton in the Greek. Obviously where we get our word. Paul is the wise architect. I think Paul Schultz, I think you ought to put that outside and hang that on your shingle. Paul Schultz, the wise architect. I like it. Why is he wise? He's contrasting that to the foolishness he had talked about in the previous chapter. 
I am not coming to you with the wisdom of this world, but with the wisdom of God, with a wisdom that is right and pure and holy. It's foolishness to the world, but it is wisdom in the Lord. And Paul says, that's how I'm coming. I'm a wise architect. He writes, this is classic Paul. I'm a wise architect. People take statements like this from Paul and they say, arrogant much? Paul... Maybe he teaches some great doctrine and has some great things, but boy, I'll tell you, the stuff he says in some of his letters, I just got to wonder how arrogant he really is. He's been accused of this for 2,000 years. My friends, please don't mistake confidence for arrogance. Paul was a humble man. Paul was a humbled man. Paul was a man who gave up everything for the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul laid it all aside. Paul counted all of his promise, all of his education, all of his wealth, of his family, everything that was behind him, he counted as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul was not arrogant. And as we go through the letters of Paul, if words, if phrases come up, and you go, man, that just if I said that, I would think that's a little prideful. You need to stop and look at what he's saying. And understand that these words come from a very humble man. Paul is not saying, I'm all that in a sketch pad. I'm not the wise architect. That's not what he's saying. He just knows his place among the building crew. He knows what his role is. And note this, he says, like a wise master builder. Akin to a wise... I'm not him saying, I'm the wise master builder. He says, I'm like one. I'm trying to give you an example and understanding of how this building process works. And first, you need to understand we're about the building up of the house of God, the building up of the body. But I came to you like a wise architect, like a wise master builder. And again, his wisdom is of the cross, which he's made absolutely clear. Contrary to the wisdom of Corinth, the Sophia. That's the Greek word. And and they were all into this. This Sophia. And this one group had the Sophia. No, we have the Sophia. No, it's us. We have the Sophia. And Paul says, look, I've got the Sophia of the cross. Whereas the wisdom of Corinth is worldly and natural. And note also that he says there in verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me. That's how the architect came to Corinth. He was like a wise architect. Why? Because he had the grace of God given to him. And like Paul, that's how we build. We build not according to our strengths, not according to our abilities, not according to our vast training and education. No, we build according to the grace that was given to us. And he's not talking about salvation. Yes, we are saved by grace, but the grace that is given to us is a different kind of grace. Once saved, you receive this charis. Charis in the Greek, which is also translated kindness, favor. According to the kindness given to us, we build. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, every time you see that word gifts, it's kindnesses, it's favor. Instead of asking each other, hey, what's your spiritual gifting? Perhaps we should say, what are your spiritual kindnesses? I think that's a great way to look at it. Do you have the spiritual kindness of a word of wisdom? Do you have the spiritual kindness of words of knowledge? 
The spiritual kindness of prophecy or the spiritual kindness of healing or miracles? Do you have the spiritual kindness of tongues? If we looked at it this way, I think maybe we would change our perspective on the spiritual gifts. (laughs) I'm so gifted. No, I've been given the grace of God, the kindnesses of God. The same kindnesses that led me to repentance. The same kindness of God that then secures me for salvation. Now these kindnesses are given to me and I am to build the church the same way. With the charis, with the kindness, the grace that's been given me. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.10, As each one has received a charis, a gift, a kindness, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold kindnesses of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not us. Not displaying the power of our spiritual gifting. Rather, sharing the spiritual kindnesses that have been given to us. By God. When I refer to the work of His grace... It's not arrogance, my friends. It's confidence. Paul is confident that like a wise master builder, he was given a certain degree of grace and kindness to come to Corinth and to lay a foundation and to bring them to their understanding of what the church is to be, of how we are to be built up. And whether I'm an apostle architect or a pastor foreman or a servant subcontractor, Whatever my role is in this building process, the point is the building up of the body of Christ. The oikodome of the church. So Paul's the architect of the church at Corinth. He brought them the building plans. And someone might say at this point, well, wait a minute, though. I thought Jesus said, I will build my church. Exactly. Number three, Jesus is the foundation. He is the foundation. Verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other. There's no other foundation. There's no other doctrine. There's no other book. There's no other standard. There's no other thinking or thought process. It is Jesus Christ. And Him crucified, I think Paul would say. In fact, what he's doing here in verse 11 is once again, he is calling out the rallying cry of the called. Which is what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Chapter 1, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 2. The cross of Christ. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is no other foundation. And did you hear what he said back in verse 10? He says each man must be careful how he builds on it. Why? In a very familiar teaching, in fact, it's one that we read out of Matthew just a couple of weeks back, Luke records Jesus using this word, foundation, exact same word, as the basis for obedience. And I kind of wonder, because Luke was a companion of Paul, and they were such good friends that traveled together, I wonder if Luke had related this exact story, or this this retelling of it by Jesus to Paul. Listen to Jesus speak, Luke 6, verse 46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Boy, before we read any more, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That is a profound statement. Can you answer that? We cannot claim Jesus Christ as Lord if we refuse to obey His teaching. His teaching? The Bible. Oh, it's not just the Gospels? No, it's Genesis through Revelation because the whole thing is of the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you refuse to obey what I say? What I have told you. What I have laid out before you. It shocks me. And I'm going to confess this to you because I'm about to go on vacation, so it's good. I can do this. I've been weary lately. I need some vacation. I need a time just to rest and breathe and, and pray and play with my kids. I've been weary, and, and I was thinking about this last night. What, what is this weariness going on here, Lord? And what it comes back to is the degree of sin that I see in the church. It's exhausting. We come here and we sing worship songs. We call out, Lord Jesus, oh yeah, you're my Lord. I'm your follower. I'm your servant. I'll get down on my knees if I have to to prove it in worship. And then we go out into our week and we do not obey. You cannot call someone Lord unless you're obedient to your Lord. And, and, and it should be exhausting to us. Don't get me wrong. We should look around and say, why? Why do we shrug off and tolerate so much sin in the body of Christ? It's not okay. What about grace? Yes, God's grace is there. Calling us to repent. His kindnesses are there saying, stop. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery? Neither do I condemn you. Have fun. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Sin no more. Stop it. If you know what is right to do by the very words of Jesus and do not do it, can you rightly call Him Lord? Well, Jesus goes on. He says, everyone who comes to Me and hears My words and acts on them, I'll show you whom He is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard, and listen, he's heard. This is the person who's heard the teaching of the Word of God and has not acted accordingly. Is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and it immediately collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Paul says Jesus is the foundation. He says, I came to you, Corinth, like a wise master builder with the plans of building up this thing called the called out, the ecclesia, the church. And I gave you the plans and laid a foundation and the foundation is Jesus Christ. There is no other. But if we don't act on His words, if we don't obey what He says, we don't have a foundation to stand on. We wobble and waffle. And in the church, there are too many platitudes and empty words. Too many people, as I said a few minutes ago, are fearful in church. Why is that? Because they sink their hope of salvation into the mortar of a peculiar or a particular fellowship or denomination. 
Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. Well, I'm the other. That's what will save me. Keeping the precepts and the teachings of my denominational tradition, that's how I get to heaven. Wrong. There is one foundation, and His name is Jesus. And you only have one way to get to heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ. And you know what's amazing? I'm already in trouble from time to time in this area for saying things like that. For going head-to-head with denominational creeds and traditions that do not save a person. People are fearful in church because they're wary of perceived threats to their particular brand of Christianity or their doctrinal identity. Holding on to tradition rather than holding on to Jesus who holds on to you. See, tradition can't hold you. Tradition has no arms. It has no hands. It has no fingers. It cannot hold on to you. Only the living Jesus can hold you in His arms. Only He can take you into the place of salvation. And He said, His words, not mine, Mark 7, verse 6. To the Pharisees, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching, listen, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That should make us take every doctrinal statement, every statement of faith ever written by a man and throw it in the fire. And turn right around to the one doctrine of Jesus Christ, His Word, and say, This alone is our standard. This alone is that by which we will live. We will obey His Word and no other. Because our trust, our faith is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 29 verse 13, what Isaiah says specifically, by the way, inspired by Jesus, you're putting your faith in traditions learned by rote. And that's the problem. Be careful how you build, Paul says. Build on Jesus, not on dogma. Build on Jesus, the person, not on the precepts of man. Act on His Word. Act through obedience. And and it's not just a leadership issue, my friends. It is how we all together build up the house of God. We build up the church as each of us, as individuals and collectively together say, we will be obedient to the word of Christ. And we will reject the precepts of men. Some of those precepts, by the way, are really good. Don't get me wrong. Some of those statements of faith, some of those ways of of teaching and those ways of trying to remember things, it's not that they're bad, it's that when they replace the word of God as our hope of salvation, we are lost. Because it is only in Jesus Christ we are saved. And He alone is the foundation. We could stop right there and we'd be fine this morning, but we're going to continue on. Number four, the building materials. He brings the building plan, that is, the architect. He lays the foundation there at Corinth simply by teaching them Jesus is it. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And now Paul starts to talk about the building materials. Verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, what's the foundation? Okay, just making sure everybody's listening. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Okay, stop right there. Entire volumes have been written as to the deeper meanings of these materials. 
gold, silver, precious stones. What does he mean? Wood, hay, straw. There's got to be some deep, rich, spiritual meaning. It's not that difficult. It's pretty straightforward here. Two things to note about this. First off, Paul may very well be recalling the Jewish temple. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. All of these would be materials used, at least in the building and the preparation. Not that there was any straw in the temple, but it would have been used down in the quarry. It would have been used for the transportation of the stones. But these these materials of building, they, they are reminiscent of Solomon's temple. First Chronicles 29 verse 2. Solomon says, Now with all my ability I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the silver, and the bronze for the bronze, and the iron for the iron, and the wood for the wood, and the onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony, and stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Do you know that when Solomon finished his temple... He overlaid the whole thing in gold. Can you even imagine what it looked like when the bright Jerusalem sun hit that thing early in the morning? Stunning. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Second Chronicles 3 verse 5. He overlaid the main room with cypress wood and overlaid it with fine gold and ornamented it with palm trees and chains. And further, he adorned the house with precious stones. And the gold was gold from Parvaim. And Parvaim would be like Roslyn Capital today. I mean, it's the stuff, you know. The good gold. The prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And just a little heads up, if you are to travel with us to Israel in two years, stand on the Mount of Olives, look across at the Temple Mount, you will see two very interesting things. You will see a big round dome of pure gold. And you will see another little dome of pure silver, although it's very tarnished. And every time I look at that, I remember... The gold is mine, and the silver is mine. It is not yours, man. It is not yours, Islam. It is not yours, false religions. The gold and the silver and the temple mount, that's mine. God's going to retake it in a day not long from now. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. And then God says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And you Bible students know the latter glory of the house? Solomon's temple was far more glorious than Zerubbabel's temple. Well, what about Herod's retrofit? Well, yeah, Herod built it up bigger and more glorious than ever before, but that wasn't the glory of the temple. See, in the first temple, Solomon's temple, God's Shekinah glory entered in and filled the temple. After that temple was destroyed, the Shekinah would never return. The glory of God did not return to Zerubbabel's temple. He accepted, he received their worship, but his glory did not fill the second temple And yet the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory. How does that work? Well, you see, Jesus Christ, the foundation, walked the marble tiles of that second temple. He entered the temple in person. And the latter glory of the house was greater than the former. And by the way, the latter glory of the house came in and cleaned house more than once. I'll come back to that thought. The gold, the silver, the precious stones. But again, even wood, hay, and straw had their use in the building process of the temples, the house of the Lord. 
wood from the cedars of Lebanon was brought down and used in the temple. Of course, it burned up first. And so that's really what Paul's doing with this example. Not just recalling the Jewish temple, which perhaps he would have been thinking, but he's pointing out to the people at Corinth, at the church there, the durability of how we build. He is recognizing durability. Which again is why William William Devane keeps coming on TV and telling people to buy gold. (laughs) Standing there in a golf cart while it's raining. If you've seen the commercial, it's like, I think I would have checked the weather app before I went out that morning, Will. (laughs) Anyway, buy gold! He says, why? Gold is that commodity that for the history of man has always been considered precious. Every culture, every generation looks at gold and says this is precious. And gold has a lasting quality to it, a lasting value to it. And so Paul says, be careful how you build. Build on the foundation of Jesus like that. Recognizing what will last. Recognizing what is gold, ultimately. Speaking of gold... The Bible tells us in New Jerusalem, Revelation 21.21, that the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So I guess one man's gold is another man's asphalt. (laughs) What's he saying in Revelation 21.21, that the streets are actual gold? I think probably, yeah. But I also think that it reminds us that what down here is the most precious of precious things that we can think of. Gold. Up there, we're just going to walk on it. And yet, it's up there. The picture holds. The gold remains. It is something of lasting, of eternal value. A picture of durability. And Paul is talking about this here. And... He he takes his building analogy and he actually shifts it a little bit. He crosses over from the materials of building literally to mankind. Because ultimately, the only things that will last from this world and into eternity are saved people. This church building will not be here in the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. It'll be gone. These chairs, that guitar... It's wood. It won't be here. Wood, hay, straw. There are things that we spend so much effort and energy and time on that are just going to go up in flames. You want to build the church? Want to build the church together? Introduce somebody to Jesus. And you will have just laid a stone. You will have just fitted another piece to the wall. Tell someone about Jesus. It is the A number one way to build up the house of God. The truth is, there are all kinds of things a church can do. You know that. You gather a group of people together, and there are things you can tackle that you can't by yourself. You start to collect funds and money, and man, you can pour it into stuff. You can get stuff done in this world. There are all kinds of modes of busy work in the church gets into it. And some church fellowships look more like the Winchester Mystery House than the House of God. What are you talking about? You ever heard about the Winchester Mystery House? Sarah Winchester, the wife of the famous you know, gun manufacturer, the gun guy, Winchester. His wife in San Jose built a house and she believed superstitiously that in the day that building stopped on her house, she would die, so she kept building. 
Contractors were there 24-7. Hallways were built. New staircases. You can go to the Winchester Mystery House and check it out today. It's this sprawling Victorian mansion. And you go up a set of stairs and they end in a wall. You open a door. There's a passageway. Go down the passageway. It doesn't go anywhere. And there are rooms that you go into and there's no way out. And, and it just, she just kept building and building and building and adding on and doing this and doing that and doing the other because she thought, if I don't keep building, I die. Creepy! And yes, some churches do that. If we don't keep building, we'll die. So the key to our success as a growing fellowship is we got to keep adding on and we got to keep doing ministries. And by the way, if we start one, we can't stop one because it's already been started and we've always done it. So we've got to keep going. I don't care if all the people who were involved in it left and, and, and we got to find someone to do that. Why? Because that's what we do. That's one of the many things we do. We've got to keep building. Staircases winding to nowhere. Rooms that are devoid of furniture and life and relationship. Passageways ending in walls. Even the purest gold and the most sterling of silver and the most flawless of precious stones becomes absolutely worthless if not applied to the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if what we're doing is not for the sake of Jesus, if it's not about Jesus, if it's not lifting up and magnifying Jesus, why are we doing it? Speaking of gold and silver, Revelation 18.11 says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, that is Babylon, in its destruction. Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones that become worthless when Babylon goes down. So even those things, if not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, are not worth the time of day. Don't invest in it. (laughs) Even the Jerusalem temple itself, built there on the bedrock of Mount Moriah, went down in flames. Solomon's temple. Herod's temple. Which brings me to the next critical point of construction. You might not think it's necessary, and yet it is. Each man's work, verse 13, will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Fire? Number five in our list, Every building site needs a good slash pile. The slash pile. I didn't even know what a slash pile was until one started building up on my property when we built my house. And it got bigger and bigger. And it was old tree stumps of trees that we had to cut down to make room for the house. And it was limbs and wood and refuse and junk and garbage that that came out of the building of the house that was no longer necessary. And this pile was huge. What was even more huge were the flames when we lit that bad boy. (laughs) They called me up and they said, Rick, we're we're burning the slash pile today. We were at that time living over on the Gilmore's property where I could look from, from where the barn was. I could look across and I could see where our property was. And above the tree line, about 25 or 30 feet above the tree line, I could see the flames. I mean, it was just huge. And it burned, and it burned, and it burned. And when I finally got up there and saw it, there was nothing but smoldering ash left. Nothing was left. The slash pile is necessary for building. 
And Paul says, verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it, that is on the foundation of Christ, if it remains, he'll receive a reward. <laughs> got a house. There's something to live in. The house of God. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as so as through fire. And it's an ironic picture, arriving in heaven with your pants on fire. <laughs> Do you really want to show up that way at the gate? <laughs> Just a bucket of water, please. <laughs> I barely got out. <laughs> but it's amazing grace, really, because you're still in heaven. Now, it's important that we understand that Paul is talking to Christians here. This is not a statement of how people gain their salvation. It's not about what salvation looks like. And he is not saying, if any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Meaning, universal salvation, if you just don't do anything, you're still going to be saved. It's all good. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking to Christians. He is teaching believers who have already been saved and now are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. How you build will be reflected in how you are compensated. Understand that when we arrive in heaven. Compensated. Yeah, you're saved. That's not compensation. That's a gift. Your salvation is not a reward. Only rewards are given for good things done. Well, you didn't do anything to be saved. You just believe in Jesus and He saves you. And so there will be people who believe in Jesus, trust in Him, but they arrive in heaven and while they are saved, they will have little or nothing to show for it. And yet they will be there by the grace of God. But listen, it's so important. There's the fire that we'll come to. But there's also the fire that we go through. The fire that is necessary even in the building process. Even as the building is being built up and edified in Christ Jesus. A fire that is for now in addition to the fire that's going to be then. What do you mean, Rick? 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation now please understand this that is true for the individual but Peter is talking to the church This information in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is true for the individual as well. But Paul is talking to the church. He is saying the church together will go through fire. Will experience fiery ordeals, difficult times, persecution from the outside in. You're not on your own on this one. We're all together in this as the body of Christ is being edified and built up. The slash pile is burning. And sometimes it gets hot. And sometimes it brings fire our way. Indeed, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the question is that Paul is asking, will we build things that persevere and outlast those flames of persecution? Durable, pure, eternal lives, faithful, lasting, godly marriages, 
strong, biblically rooted churches? Will we build things that last the persecution and the fires of this world? Or will we be consumed by the fires of this world until our churches look just like the world? The question is not, will we go through the flames, but how we'll come out on the other side. How we as a church fellowship and how the church at large will look, will be. Now I said this is also a future reference. It's the fire we will go through, but there's also the fire that we'll come to. Each man's work is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So there's a fire that's coming. Wait a minute. But we're still talking about the church, right? We're still talking about Christians, right? This is not judgment day. This is not the eternal fires of hell. There's a different fire. There's a fire that burns away the chaff. A fire that removes all the superfluous junk from our lives so that we are pure, like pure gold, pure silver, pure precious stones standing before Jesus. And I believe Paul is referring here to the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat of Jesus Christ. Which he writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, for we must all, again, he's talking to Christians now, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that's how you know it's not final judgment. What do you mean? Three judgments so that we can be perfectly clear with one another. There's our judgment that took place at the cross. And if you believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, your judgment is done. You are saved. Period. Beautiful. And then there is final judgment for all those who wish to be judged based solely on their deeds. And that is a judgment unto eternal salvation. And those who wait for that judgment, there's only one outcome. And you can read about it in Revelation 20 and it's not good. There's a judgment in the middle and it is for Christians. It is for believers. It is the judgment seat of Christ. And the uniqueness about this is that that judgment, it's about recompense or compensation. It's about receiving rewards. Remember I told you, salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a gift. These are rewards. And Paul says we're going to come to the judgment seat of Christ and there we're going to be judged. And as he says, each man's work, the quality, is going to be tested by fire. Tested by fire. How's that work? Is Jesus going to like run down to the reservation and pick up some Roman candles and artillery shells? How's... How are we going to be tested by fire at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ? I will submit this to you. That Revelation 1 verse 14 tells us. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. I'll tell you what, there is something fiery in the eyes of Jesus that just burns away sin. All you got to do is look at Him. And you do not like the sin in your life. All we have to do is see Jesus. You know, I was talking to a pastor friend the other day, a guy in another state who's struggling right now, struggling with his church, struggling with it growing, and he said, I just don't understand. We spent all last month working on our vision statement. I cast our vision. I presented our vision to the church, and it's just not growing. In fact, we have less people this last Sunday than we did the month before, and I laid out the vision. 
And I didn't say this to him because I didn't want to be rude or presumptuous. But in my head, I thought, you know what? All we need is one vision. We just need to see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, it changes everything. When I look at Jesus, the sin in my life is filthy. I hate it. I want it gone. And He burns it away. When I look at Jesus, all I have is the rejoicing of the future to come and my hope and my salvation. When I look at Jesus, He is the vision we need. His eyes, the flame of fire. So that when we see Him, all the straw, all the wood, all the stubble of our lives, it's going to burn away and all that will be left, get this, all that will be left is what's beautiful in His sight. He will see His people and will be a pure and spotless bride, Revelation 19 describes. I can't wait for the moment. I think about when Jesus looked at Peter... Luke twenty two sixty one. In the moment, and you can read this, in the moment that Peter hit that third denial of Jesus on that dark and tragic night, Luke records that Jesus turned and looked right at him. Eyes of fire. Eyes of compassionate, gracious fire. But tear-filled, blood-stained eyes. And Peter went out and absolutely wept. And it was good weeping because the Bible says godly sorrow produces repentance. And truly Peter would repent. And what was wonderful is that then later, just, well, 43 days later, roughly, out on the shores of the Galilee, Jesus was there again. And He looked at Peter, those same eyes, and He asked Peter, John 21, 17, Shimon, son of Yohanan, Do you love me? Do you love me? David wrote in Psalm 17.8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. My friends, Jesus' eyes are on His church to save even as through fire. We need the fire. It is part of the building process to get rid of the garbage and leave us a beautiful house of God. And finally, number six. Number six. And note this. The house of God. The house of God. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And my friends, mark this down in your Bibles if you have to. He's not talking to the individual Christian here. He is talking to the church. Now when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, yes, he will talk to the individual. He'll say, you're you're a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. It's not what he says here. He's talking to the church body. He's describing the building up of the church. And he says, church, you are the temple of God. And His Spirit dwells in you. Individually, yes. But collectively, the Spirit of God is here. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. The Spirit of God dwells among us. We are the house of God. The house of God. By the way, if you are taking notes, and on number six you wrote down the house of God, I want you to line through house and write in sanctuary. 
Because truly we are the sanctuary of God, the sanctuary of the Spirit of God. Paul's word here for temple in verse 16 is nahos. And nahos in the Greek specifically describes the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies in the temple. The sanctuary. And Paul now takes the word that always describes a sanctuary and he applies it to the church. Verse 16 Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Even the pagans would understand that. They had their sanctuaries where they believed their gods dwelled. And now Paul's saying, look, this is not your sanctuary. This building, this barn-like construction around us, we call this room sometimes our sanctuary. It's not. We are the sanctuary of God. We are the dwelling place of God. When two or three gather, when brothers and sisters gather in the name of Christ, and that alone is reason enough for us to assemble together. Because we're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are the sanctuary of God. Now again, personally, Paul will get to you and to me, saying that each believer is also a sanctuary. Do you not know that your body, 1 Corinthians 6.19, is a nahos, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? But note that difference. The sanctuary of the Holy Spirit is the believer. 2 Corinthians 1.22, He sealed us, He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So the individual believer we have as our bodies a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit, but the sanctuary of God is His church. We, 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ephesians 2.19, you are God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, remember Solomon's temple, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We together are the sanctuary of God. When we gather... We're the sanctuary of God. We are a holy house. And He will not allow His house to be despoiled. Happens in my home quite a bit. If you have children, you understand this. And I'm finding the interesting dichotomy between being an older 50-year-old parent and when I was a younger parent and I didn't care so much when there were Legos all over the floor. When the Wii remotes were left out and the games were spilled all over the couch and the books were strewn across my living room. When I was a younger man, I didn't mind so much. Now as an older man who should be in an empty nest and retiring peacefully, I come into my house and it's all askew. And I wonder, where did the peace go? God will not allow His house to be despoiled. Jesus came into His house and He found it an absolute mess. And when Jesus came in, I'm going to read to you from John 2 and we'll finish here. 
We're told in John 2 verse 14, He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, He said, Take these things away. Stop making my Father's house a place of business. And His disciples remembered that it was written, Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal, for your house will consume me. Are you zealous for God's holy house? Do you have zeal for the church of the living God? I know some people say, Oh, I've been hurt by church. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You've been hurt by people wildly swinging their hammers indiscriminately. You've been hurt by division. In groups of people devoid of the Spirit, you've been hurt by immature milk drinkers, but you have not been hurt by the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Brothers and sisters, I just want to be part of that. I want to slide into place in peace and in unity, in the joy of the Spirit. And that we will do as long as Jesus is the foundation. The temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Father, You have called us and assembled us to be a holy house, a holy dwelling for the Spirit of God. And You have a vision. You have a purpose for us. You have a calling on our hearts. We have a rallying cry, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We have a foundation on which we stand, Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And it's my prayer, Father, that You will continue to build this fellowship. Build us in the peace of Your Spirit. Build us in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. May we in all things, Lord, bring honor and glory to Your name alone. In Jesus' name, Amen.